Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Hello and welcome to Hysteria. I'm Erin Ryan. And I'm Alyssa Mastromonaco. Alyssa, remember how I've been saying the vibe this year is chaos? Yes. It sort of is the vibe, but then I saw some images from the Queen's 70th Jubilee. And I think the vibe is Prince Louis. (laughs) That little Louis is a real handful. He is just so funny. I I know that there are people who are saying that the little the little kids of of Kate and William were acting foolish. But I think they were just acting like kids, covering their faces, making Here's my question though. How nerdy are his older brother and sister that he somehow learned the put your thumb on your nose and wave your fingers thing? I felt like that had gone out a long time ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, that must be something that is associated with the British aristocracy still. I mean, my favorite is when he kept covering Kate's mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And she was, let me tell you, she kept her shit together. That's for sure. My mom would have grabbed that hand and she'd be like, I'll give you something to cry about. (laughs) (laughs) I would have, you know, I I think that I would have gotten removed from the situation. I would be like, we are going home. And I would have been loaded into the royal minivan. And and they would have carried you out like a poopy diaper, like hands out, like you were just <laughs> being deposited into the royal minivan. Oh, man. But yeah, I think specifically the vibe is uh, the little prince covering his ears as there is a plain salute for his grandmother flying over. Like, yeah, like, ah, I, so loud. I hate this. <laughs> I hate all of this. <laughs> that is that is my, it's going on my vision board. And um, that's the energy that I'm going to tackle the, the back half of 2022. So I'm here for it. Look forward to that. This week, we've got Rebecca Traster, Dana Schwartz, and Megan Gailey to tackle the following questions. How are Uvalde survivors keeping the pressure on Congress? What can Dianne Feinstein tell us about the failure of our institutions? How do we finally rid ourselves of the menace of the bikini body? And who has right-of-way at this four-way stop sign? All this and more right now. All right, the news. Alyssa, Mm. what's on your mind today? What's going on in the news today? Aaron, so, you know, we have heard over and over again that, that the rage... And out with outrage following a mass shooting usually lasts for about three or four days. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people are doing their level best in the wake of Buffalo and Uvalde and all of the other shootings that have happened since to keep them in the news. And part of what is so hard is that it takes not just, uh, you know, the media needs a story to follow to, you know, propel themselves to keep this in the news. And so what that has amounted to the past couple of days are 
watching people who have been traumatized re-traumatize themselves uh, in the hope that elected officials will pay attention. And I just wanted to mention a couple of them here today because they were so heartbreaking. Arnufal Reyes was a teacher in Uvalde. One of his classrooms was one of the classrooms that was um, attacked. Uh, he was shot immediately when the gunman entered the room and was shot multiple times and and uh, immobilized. So he had to lay on the floor for 77 minutes and see what went down in his classroom. And he gave an interview to ABC where he said, He wanted to come on so he could apologize to the parents and saying he tried his best. I don't know what could be more fucked up than that poor man having to say that to make people understand how bad what happened happened. He can't go back to the classroom. And he said that he will dedicate himself now to trying to change the laws. Garnell Whitfield Jr., a son of Ruth Whitfield, who was killed in Buffalo, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee. And his message to them was, You expect us to continue to just forgive and forget. And he wanted them to show that his mom's life mattered. And then as we record right now, um, people are testifying before the House Oversight Committee. Dr. Roy Guerrero, who is a pediatrician who treated some of the victims who came in from Uvalde, who said that um, he did his job. He did his job by trying to help those kids. And now it was time for Congress to do their job. Felix and Kimberly Rubio, parents of Lexi, who was killed, testified as to what they have gone through. And in one of the most incredible things I've ever seen, Mia Cirillo, 11 years old, she was the girl whose best friend was killed next to her and smeared her blood on her body so that the gunman would think she was dead, testified about how she has felt since the shooting. And I mean, Aaron, it is just uh, pretty fucking incredible that an 11-year-old who will never be the fucking same ever again felt so strongly that she had to do this because she survived. And it was like what she had to do to help her friends who didn't survive. And the fact that we live in a country where that poor girl has to live trauma on top of trauma to try to get elected officials to pay attention is um, pretty fucking sick. And I hope that they at least took the time to look into her eyes and hear what she said and hear what Dr. Guerrero had to say and Lexi's parents. And um, I don't know if they're going to do anything, Aaron, but I swear to fucking God, it is it is uh, extreme. It's It's extremely just tragic and pathetic that this is what it takes to try to get people to pay attention. I mean, it's... Watching an 11-year-old talk about having lived through that feels uh, like I'm witnessing something incredibly brave and also incredibly obscene. Yes. Um, One thing that I would say to lawmakers who feel as though what their role is is to pretend to give a shit until people have moved on to something else, here's the thing. If you have children or grandchildren, I, I think a lot of lawmakers have demonstrated that they're only able to, demonst- to to consider empathy in the context of their own children or grandchildren, yeah. their own wives and daughters, and they, it, their empathy does not extend beyond that. But here's the thing. If they have grandchildren, great-grandchildren, children, they are seeing themselves up there. An yeah. 11-year-old child is seeing themselves up there. 
and they are understanding that they are in danger, which they should never have to think about, but they're also understanding that their parent or grandparent is empowered to act, but is not acting. Uh-huh. And in uh-huh. like, if I could, if I could sit down with a, 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 a gun regulation resistant member of Congress or member of the Senate, I would say your grandkids are going to fucking hate you. If uh-huh. they don't hate you now, they're going to. And if they don't, then they're going to grow up to be just as bad as you. Um, but most normal 11-year-old kids, 12-year-old kids, 13-year-old kids, any kid watching the news, anybody with a parent, anybody who's a parent who has a child that age watching in action, they're going to fucking hate you. And that's, you know, one of the things that Lexi's mother said was to all the moms out there watching this, thinking you can't possibly understand how I feel, you may understand how I feel someday. I mean, if that's not a fucking wake-up call, I don't know. I don't know what more it takes, Aaron. We say it all the time. Don't know what more it takes. Um, Here's something that I never expected to say. Okay. And I I don't want to make light of this. This is like an extremely dark moment. But Matthew McConaughey has somehow become an incredible voice of reason and compassion in the gun debate. Um, it's unbelievable. On Tuesday, I did not know he had it in him. I mean, and and that's not to to say that I I think that you know actors can't have political beliefs because I think that they're well positioned to actually make a difference by having access to their platform. Um, but I had never ever seen a proud you know son of Texas get so emotional. And so involved in something. Matthew McConaughey did not have to get involved in the conversation. He didn't have to get involved. And he didn't have to spend over a week in Uvalde on the ground. You know, I mean, it's like he didn't just... So many times I think we see celebrities who hear about something and then get up and talk about it. And it does feel a bit like grandstanding. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's walking the walk and talking the talk. I mean, there is... Or they hear about it and write a check. And think, now I don't have to think about this anymore. Right. Um, But this isn't writing a check. This no. is like getting up behind a podium at the White House and being driven to an emotional point of like near tears. And um I I just have to I have to commend him. I you know yes. and, he, and and here's here's the thing. There was the grandstanding <laughs> remark was in reference I'm assuming yeah. to a reporter asking are you grandstanding? As right. though a reporter's job isn't to fucking lend <laughs> importance to <laughs> Totally. <laughs> come on, you you just told on yourself reporter. Um but okay, let's let's even say that he was grandstanding for the sake of argument. If he was grandstanding, he wasn't he still made a very important point. Like regardless of whether or not he entirely felt everything that he said with the emotion that he said it, the point that he was making is the correct point. It's the correct point. And he was also talking about um, horrific things that he had actually witnessed. So shut the fuck up, reporter. Yeah. Like, aren't you telling on yourself as being somebody who could talk to somebody who could see a pair of sneakers, for example, that were used to identify Ooh. the body of a child and not get, oh, you're a person who could see that and not find that to be like intolerably 
horrific, something that could have made your emotions soar to a level you might not have known was possible. I don't respect people who can be fully dispassionate in moments like this. I agree. I do not respect them. And I think that I think that there's something to be said for, you know, being a reporter, getting the facts, getting the news, whatever, not breaking down into tears in the middle of a news broadcast. But like, I don't respect a person who can fully remain dispassionate and expects a lack of passion or emotion out of other people who are engaged with this because that's gross. That's that's gross. It's gross. There are no two sides to this story. Okay. You don't have to be down the middle. This is, there's only one side to this story, uh, the right side and the wrong side. And the wrong side is so wrong that it's like, I don't want to share a planet with you. Please go to the moon, start a colony, start a a blog about living on the moon that I won't read. I I don't want to share a planet with you if you don't have an emotional response to shootings at elementary schools and at grocery stores and in places where people should be safe. Um, that's, I mean, that's not a very practical solution. Send them to the moon. Um, but I'm working on it. I'm, I'm workshopping it. Um, if anyone can, it's you. Thank you. One thing that I I wanted to talk about specifically uh, on the substance of McConaughey's comments is that Uh he, he, I thought had a very intelligent way of proposing. I agree. I agree. He he talked about gun responsibility. Yes. Which is a a real it really gets to the core of what I think almost every sensible person in this country wants, which is gun responsibility, red flag laws, a uh, ban on specific types of weapons, um age limits on specific types of weapons, background checks. Those are just basic responsibility and calling it gun control I think makes it out to be a lot more draconian than it actually is. Yeah. He he lit, he really starts off by talking about the fact that he was raised with guns mm-hmm. and that part of that was that he learned how to respect it, that you have to respect the guns and you have to respect mm-hmm. the power that they have and was taught properly how to use them. And so why shouldn't, why shouldn't we all have to respect and be responsible? And really what's the harm in not being able to get a semi-automatic weapon until you're 21? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree. I agree with uh, McConaughey. On, I agree with Matthew McConaughey on both form and substance here. Um, yes, and, ten, and ten I, out of ten. Yeah, and I really hope that that he um, he's remains involved in this conversation because I think his voice is is actually very important and useful. And I think, and this is going to be this is going to sound very cynical, but. Um, I'm paraphrasing something Jimmy Kimmel said, mm. and that is that all these these fuckers in Washington want to be stars, you know? Yeah, it's true. They are, and you know this having been in D.C., uh, get a celebrity around some politicians and they lose their shit. Well, and here's the thing about Matthew McConaughey is that a lot of the celebrities who normally come are they go and see Democrats a lot, you know, because mm-hmm. like the Democrats want to see them too. Most times they don't want to go see the Republicans, but Matthew McConaughey is coming to see everybody. Mm-hmm. And I'm just saying they're taking his meetings. Maybe they're actually listening. I don't know. Yeah, indeed. I, I think that it, if you're a celebrity who is beloved by um, by Republicans and members of the GOP, I think it would be a really good use of your time mm-hmm. and your clout to actually show up, jujitsu the starstruck 
patheticness response of, you know, your Ted Cruz's and your Rand Paul's or whatever, and uh, actually make them listen to you because they will listen to you because they all want to be stars and they just aren't yeah. willing to, they aren't willing to do enough crunches to get there and they can't act. <laughs> no, all right. cannot act. Cannot act. Um, we were going to talk about the USA gymnast thing, but we can talk about that next week. Yeah. Um, in short, uh, the a bunch of gymnasts who were treated by a convicted sex criminal, Larry Nasser are mm-hmm. filing a $1 billion lawsuit against the FBI for failing to act and prevent further abuse. Uh, which is weird because Alyssa, last week I thought that Captain Jack Sparrow killed the Me Too movement. You know what? I thought so too, but it seems it's back. It lives. It lives. Terrific. It lives in the form of a $1 billion lawsuit. I hope they get the it FBI. all. Every penny. They they deserve every penny. Okay, we'll probably talk more about this next week. We just didn't have time this week. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we have an interview with Rebecca Traster. And welcome back. You might recognize this week's guest from her byline at New York Magazine, where she covers the intersection of feminism and politics. You may recognize her from her always dynamic and fascinating appearances on various TV shows and podcasts, including this one, Natch, or from her nonfiction books, Good and Mad, All the Single Ladies, and Big Girls Don't Cry. If you don't recognize her, there's no time like the present to get to know her. Welcome to Hysteria, Rebecca Traster. Hello. I am happy to be on Hysteria. So glad you're here, despite the fact that you're you have the cold that's been going around across the country. I am disgusting. I'm the most disgusting guest you'll have this week. <laughs> Thank you so much. We're so glad you're here. <laughs> I feel like they should make buttons that say not COVID that you can right. wear yes. when you're sick. Only allergies. Test- <laughs> yeah. And you've tested negative. I have tested negative a hundred times this week. I feel like all I do is test. I'm like, it's gotta be COVID. Nope, not COVID. <laughs> right. And it almost would be a relief at a certain point, right? Yes. I feel that way some days. And then I remember that, like, my kids who are trying to get through the last of the school year would lose their minds if they were taken (laughs) away from the last week. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's good that it's not COVID. Anyway. Right, right. Okay. Well, good. We're, We're glad it's not COVID, too. In this week's New York Magazine cover story, you focus on the life and career of California senior Senator Dianne Feinstein. So I'll characterize the piece this way and tell me if it's unfair. It reads as very illuminating and fair, but it's not unscathing. (laughs) It's not unscathing. So in it, you write, quote, Feinstein is now both the definition of the American political establishment and the personification of the inroads women have made over the last 50 years. Her career launched in a moment of optimism about what women leaders could do for this country, offers a study in what the Democratic Party has not been able to do. Can you expand on this a little bit. Yeah. So when I actually pitched the idea of writing about Dianne Feinstein, um, that was sort of that what you just read was the idea of what I wanted to write about. Um, I am a person whose politics are very much the left of Dianne Feinstein. I have in other instances in past, I've never written about her directly before this, but, but uh, at length, but when I have written or spoken about her politics, it has often been very critically. I come to her as a person who is critical of her political moderation and, and centrism. But I am also really curious um, in, a, again, a critical way, but a, but a curious way um, about her generation of Democratic politicians, because, um, you know, 
they have had power over decades. You know, Joe Biden is the president of the United States. He came to the Senate in 1973. Dianne Feinstein is turning 89 this month. Um, she has been in the Senate since 92. She was first elected to office in San Francisco in 1969. And this is also a generation that came into power. And especially when you're talking about the Democrats, right? The gerontocracy exists both left and right. But when you're talking about the Democrats, you're also talking about a generation of politicians who came into power coterminously with the social movements, the kind of eruptive social and political movements that made space for different kinds of representation, right? The women's movement, civil rights movement, gay rights movement, and, you know, who came into their power in the late 20th century. And as Democrats who inherited the victories of those movements, right, and were supposed to be the stewards of those victories, they have also maintained their power over decades in which we have seen those victories eroded one by one. And of course, we're living in a moment in which they're just being plowed through right and left, right? Right? So like the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, we're about to overturn Roe. All these other things are on the table. We cannot, like the Senate has ground to a halt. Um, and it is technically, I mean, like really on a technicality in Democratic hands. So I'm super, I have always for a long time been curious about that approach to power and to stewardship of, of progressive wins, <laughs> stewards of progress, which is what the Democrats theoretically are supposed to be. And of course, we know that that is not how it has played out over the previous five decades. Feinstein individually is interesting to me. I write about women in politics. I write about all kinds of women in politics, women I like, women I'm on, women I dislike, right? Feinstein's fascinating to me in particular because of her history in San Francisco, which we can talk about if you're curious, but also because she comes to the Senate in 1992, which is an explosive year for women in politics in a kind of depressingly dismal way in that four women were elected to the Senate and everyone was like, oh my God, it's a shopping mall here, which is, by the way... <laughs> By the way, I'm not making it up. Pat Schroeder, who's in the House, actually has told the story of how at that that same year, 92, which came in the wake of the Anita Hill hearings in which the sort of like suffocatingly white male character of our legislative bodies was put on just disgusting and sickening view for the country. In the wake of that, the 92 election, you had this unprecedented number of women elected, four women in the Senate. And in that same year, I think, the percentage of women in the House crested, like just absolutely hit its high around 10%. And Pat Schroeder has told the story of how one of the old bulls of the Senate approached her and said, it's starting to look like a shopping mall in here. Okay, so that that is how, <laughs> that's, that's how grim it was not that long ago. Um, and Feinstein is one of the four senators elected and along with Barbara Boxer, um, became the first pair of women to represent a state. So she has a real representationally and symbolically critical role when it comes to progress for women in American politics. And she is really old and has lived through enormous amounts of history. Um, and I was genuinely curious about her. So that's how I came to the profile. Okay. So here's a question. Tracer, is it fair for progressives to aim so much ire at Feinstein for some of the setbacks Democrats have faced? Or is she just a convenient centrist scapegoat who checks a lot of the far left's boogaboo boxes in terms of her age, gender, and wealth? Yes and yes. Okay, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a lot of stuff that I, I, I also wanted to sort of unpack and be clear about here. Because so at the moment, Feinstein is the oldest sitting senator 
right? She is certainly not the oldest senator in American history. Um, and, you know, a lot of people in defending her and saying it's because there's this other strain of criticism. A lot of what I talked about just now was about her role politically, right? And her generation's actions politically. There's also a lot of very thoroughly reported at this point documentation that she's probably in a period of cognitive decline. And I write about that in addition in my piece. Um, And I think there's been a lot of defense of her that's a kind of feminist defense. Like you come after women um, harder than you come after her peers. What about Chuck Grassley? What about Pat Leahy? What about Joe Biden? What about Bernie Sanders, right? Like there's, there are a lot, this is a gerontocracy on both sides of the aisle. So why is Feinstein the villain? And I think I, I would say a couple of things. One, there is no question that, of course, there are gendered things. Like, we live in a politics that is still controlled by old white men, right? Even with the comparatively enormous gains that non-white, non-men have made in recent decades, we are still like 75% old white guys, right, in our legislative bodies. And yet, who are the big villains, right, on the left and the right? Hillary Clinton, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Dianne Feinstein, like, yeah, it's sexist, sure. But also, one of the things I want to be able to be honest about, and this is, again, a generational set of questions and critiques, is that there was the promise that this generation that was more diverse than any that had come before it in American politics was also bringing with it something different right? So it wasn't just going to be moldering old white guys, you know, being held up like Weekend at Bernie's, like, which is what Strom Thurmond was, right? He died at 100. He had, like, just left the Senate by, like, I think he was, like, just out the door. You know, he was barely sentient for a good deal of the, the end of his career, right? And the thing I write in the piece that I think is true is, like, right, so is it a double standard and we're applying higher standards for somebody like Feinstein? Sure. Yes. But also we shouldn't be aiming for a standard set by Strom Thurmond. And also a lot of what the promise of a more diverse representational body is, is that it's going to somehow be different and better than what preceded it. And so, and I I write, I go back again, Feinstein has never been an activist. She's never been a left activist, right? There's, we can, we can talk about like the ways in which she's sort of surprisingly progressive in a couple little areas and in ways in which she's a lot like a Republican and others, but she cast her own victory. And I, I start in 1969 when she's elected in a surprise upset win to become the head of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors, which is the city council there. Um, and it's, it's historic. And one of her supporters jokes about painting City Hall pink. And she tells a reporter at that time, she's a 36-year-old woman in 1969, and she says it's like the dawn of a new era, a different politics of change. And each generation does better than the one before. And then in 92, as part of that wave of women running, there was the promise, we're going to do it differently than these old white guys you just saw treating Anita Hill like a piece of shit, right? Like, like we're going to be better. We're going to be different. Vote for me in part because I'm different and better. So, so I am aware of the ways in which it is sexist to focus, and and it is, um, an undue amount of ire on the women. But I also want to be clear that their careers in part are premised on a promise that they're going to do better or different. So some of the moments from your interview with Senator Feinstein, um, to, to bring it back to what you mentioned, cognitive decline and concerns about her mental acuity, some of the moments from the interview make it seem like she is almost jaw-droppingly out of touch with 
if not reality, the lived reality of most Americans. Um, so what moment stood out to you during that interview as, as her least in touch moment? And was that a shock? Well, throughout the thing that the, the stuff she talked about, um, when we spoke and, and I want to say, I went into this piece, not expecting to speak to her. And in fact, got no response from her office for, I was working on this piece for months and had no expectation. I assumed I would not interview her so much of the reporting, including in the San Francisco Chronicle about her, her reported decline involved an unwillingness to speak to the press. So I was, I was really surprised to be on the phone with her just about 10 days ago. And uh, my piece was not about her, the reports of her cognitive decline, though obviously it addressed them. But I also felt like I needed to describe very transparently and honestly the nature of our call. And what I would say really hit me hard about her responses were that they were, as you say, they were relentlessly optimistic about the state of the country and about the institutions of the Senate, you know, and, and, and there were a lot of places where she said that it was like almost her, her neutral, where she would go back into like, she, we would start with a specific set of questions, whether we were talking about gun violence. And she has been a person who in her life, one of her lifelong battles has been gun safety and gun control measures. Um, and we were speaking two days after the murder of 19 kids in Uvalde, Texas. And she spoke about that and then ended an answer about that with, I'm very optimistic about the future of the country. And this seemed to me like just even that expression right now, two days after this massacre on the brink of Roe being gutted or overturned, uh, which is another thing. She's been a pro-choice politician, um, certainly throughout her Senate career. And it, it struck me as just so separate from any reality that I was living in. Right. And and the ability to remain somehow sunny about the state of American democracy was profoundly striking to me. And my decision in writing the piece was just to let that optimism speak for itself, to just quote her at length about her view of our institutions and the future. Um, and it did seem very distant from any reality in which I or I think millions of Americans are currently living. Tracer, how do we encourage trailblazers who have run out of steam to take a step back from public service without sounding like assholes? Do you see parallels between, as you mentioned before, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's non-retirement during the Obama years and Feinstein's plans to run for re-election in 24? Yeah. So one of the things that we do is we scream at individuals right? We get really mad at those individuals and their history's greatest monster, right? Is Dianne Feinstein or Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And, you know, that's satisfying. And there may be all kinds of reasons to be livid at these individuals. And there, you know, yeah, there are. I feel that too. But it doesn't get to the bigger and I think more pressing and more difficult. It's also easier to be assholes, right? It's easier to be like, you know, she's an old hag who should retire, which, you know, sub in whether you're talking about Ginsburg or whether you're talking about Feinstein and Ginsburg obviously should have retired, right? We can say, but in both cases, what we're not addressing are the structural problems that have like 
the in Ginsburg's case, it's the failure of the institutions, right? So Ginsburg, like everybody, including the New York Times, thought Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016, right? Ginsburg was not alone in thinking there was going to be a Democratic president, right? I was told as a person who was reporting on that campaign in 2016 and felt throughout that there was a real danger that Donald Trump was going to win. I can tell you, I was made, I was made to feel like a stupid, naive, overdramatic hysteric, uh, for being concerned about that outcome by the like very knowing people who do like data journalism or whatever, <laughs> you know, who are like, look at the polls. He's never going to win. Right. Like Saturday Night Live ran a skit with Lin-Manuel saying you're never going to be president now. OK, like <laughs> like. So Ginsburg was not the only person in America who was pretty fucking sure that Hillary Clinton was going to be the next president. But also. Mitch McConnell stole a Supreme Court seat, right? Used the levers, the, the, the system was built around inequality and overrepresentation of white and historically slaveholding America, right? The Electoral College, which did wind up handing the presidency to Donald Trump, um, was built to privilege, like to, you know, make white supremacy in the United States, right? The rule of law, and it worked. Um, the Senate overrepresents conservative areas and, and in fact, is a minoritarian body, right? Where the senators representing the fewest people in the country have more power than the senators from the states that have the most people, right? All of these systems were in place that meant that there was a Supreme Court seat that was being left open, that when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, that when Donald Trump became president was going to be filled by Neil Gorsuch, and that then Donald Trump, because of the Electoral College, is the president when she dies, and you get Amy Coney Barrett slipped in in complete rebuke to Mitch McConnell's idea that you can't do it right before an election. Like, it's all, all of these systems failed. And by the same token, Feinstein, I write about this in the piece, the Senate as a body, the way it works, rewards senescence, right? It actually, it, it offers more power, not just for the individual. So yeah, there's what individuals gain. And Dianne Feinstein has done very well by the system, right? Dianne Feinstein was born into privilege and has become bananas wealthy in her time in, in public office, right? But also, so there, there's obvious, and there, there is strong individual messaging to people to hold on to their power. But there is also actual structural reasons. So I had people from California who were her defenders explaining to me that it's for California's ability to get money to fight wildfires and build a, a subway in Los Angeles, that it matters that you have the Senate reward seniority. The longer you're fucking there, the more power you have, not only for yourself individually, but on behalf of your state. And so there is an incentive, for example, for Californians to vote Dianne Feinstein back into office in 2018 when she had a, a strong challenge from the left and that was the hardest primary she'd, I mean, she'd had, but she won because, and you know, you can argue for a lot of reasons, but because the actual body itself rewards people staying regardless of how sharp they are or not, right? And so, yes, we can be assholes and call Dianne Feinstein all kinds of ugly names. That was one of the reasons I actually, like, I really wanted to look at the institutions themselves, right? In, while also exploring the history of this individual person. Because the asshole part is, you're just screaming, you old bag, at someone, right? Right. That's the dick move. And you know what? It feels really good. And sometimes I scream that at lots of people, right? 
But actually, the, the harder critique, because it means doing what feels like sometimes impossible work, which is actually being open to changing the way our broken and unequal and unjust system works, that is taking a look at all the structural incentives that are in place that keep people there till they're 100. Yeah. Or, you know, all the coastal whites who are transplants from the Midwest, I guess we're just going to have to go back to the Midwest and repopulate <laughs> it, try to get the Senate back slowly over the course of But there 10- are things we could do, right? There are, it's not, it's, I, I say it feels impossible, but actually like there are things we could do, right? There are things like court reform that could address some of the ways the system has been manipulated for ill in recent years. We could mm-hmm. absolutely push for court reform. We could Stop the filibuster, which mm-hmm. Diane Feinstein has been reluctant to do, right? Mm-hmm. The stuff that is that that feels impossible right now, like protecting the franchise in the wake of the Voting Rights Act being gutted in 2013 in Shelby, and then, you know, states all over the country making voter suppression a key part of the Republican strategy to retain power, right? We could we could do away with the Electoral College. There are all kinds of things that we could do to actually revise and alter these institutions. It would be hard. But it seems clear that they're necessary. But mm-hmm. then you have to have the will of not just the people, but also their representatives. And so if their representatives are incentivized to still remain optimistic about the institutions in which they're working and getting nothing done, then that exacerbates the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So let's let's talk about the person, Diane Feinstein, because... Reading your piece, I I learned a lot, as I always do when I read your work, Rebecca. Um, she's led a kind of fucking cool life up to, you know, being the representative of centrism. Like, she put her fingers straight into Harvey Milk's bullet wound to try to save him. She's the first female mayor of San Francisco. Tell us a little bit about Dianne Feinstein, the person, and what makes her so fascinating and compelling apart from the structural issues that she represents. So like you, there was a lot of this history that I didn't know. I did know that she had become mayor in the wake of Mus- of Mayor George Moscone and Harvey Milk's assassinations. But like, I didn't, I hadn't gone back. I hadn't read about her childhood, which is fascinating and intense. Um, and so when I started this story and I started reading, especially a, a great biography, I mean, an incredibly useful biography. There were moments where I was like, am I doing a book report? Because Jerry Roberts <laughs> biography, Diane Feinstein, never let you them see you cry, um, is just incredibly illuminating. And the patterns that were there from the start. So she was actually born into a very wealthy family, a Jewish family. Her dad was, um, a, a renowned surgeon and the first like head of surgery at at San Francisco hospital. Um, and they moved in really rarefied social circles. Her mother, who actually um, had come to the United States after escaping from czarist Russia her with um, her czarist parents uh, through Siberia in a hay cart, had suffered encephalitis and was and and was incredibly abusive. And abusive in ways she was Russian Orthodox and like abusive in to her own children, calling them kikes and little Jews and trying to, and, and abusing, she was an alcoholic, suicidal, and she abused her kids. And at one point tried to drown one of, um, Diane's sisters in the bathtub, right? This is like just incredibly abusive. And yet all that was kept secret. And they lived in this incredible, like a world of real San Francisco privilege. And San Francisco had, had been actually a super macho, town, right? We think of it now, well, I mean, I I guess now it's like, you know, we're talking the day after um, San Francisco recalled its progressive um, 
prosecutor. But uh, there was a period in which San Francisco was kind of synonymous with left-wing politics. But in the period where where Diane is growing up, that's not necessarily the case. And she comes from this very wealthy world. Um, and she is kind of obsessed with order, right? She winds up going to Catholic school and she loves the like the white gloves and the processions and everything. And then when she when she wins her spot on the board of supervisors, she's like all about sort of technocratic efficiency, making it a full-time job. Like she really believes in civic authority and, and the order of governance, maybe to stave off chaos. Right. And that only grows more intense as you know, she serves on the board of supervisors. She is a moderate, right? I think again, not necessarily from an ideological perspective, because she's kind of all over the place on like the death penalty, gay rights. Like there's all kinds of weird position shifts that she makes over the course of her, her life. But in terms of like, we need to come to a point of consensus, right? And therefore those, um, uh, you know, have to come across the partisan divide in order for us to get something done. Like that's her fundamental belief system is the consensus of those in power coming together, which is all about power at the top, right? Um, and, and so she, she is this moderate. She doesn't want to take any particularly far extreme position. And she feels there's no place for her in politics. She runs for mayor twice, loses both times. And then in 78, just as she's decided to leave politics, one of her colleagues on the board of supervisors, a guy she likes, uh, he's a former cop. Diane Feinstein loves cops. Okay. Um, Dan White, former police officer, um, is disenchanted, quits his place on the board, tries to get it back. Harvey Milk, who is the first openly gay uh, politician elected in California and one of the very first across the country. He's just gotten a, a seat on the board of supervisors um, and is a very liberal and activist supervisor and often at odds with Dianne Feinstein. Um, Dan White is angry at the liberal mayor, George Moscone, and it. Harvey Milk, he comes in and kills them both. As you say, Diane goes into the, she's the one who finds Milk's body and goes to find a pulse and puts her finger through the bullet hole. And that night she becomes the interim mayor of San Francisco, a job that she has run for and lost twice and never expected to run for again. And she winds up being the mayor of San Francisco again, heavy on the civic order, like in weekly meetings, like it's all bureaucracy. It's all like, we're going to put systems in place. She believes in systems. She believes in order. And like, she gives meetings and the co- the police chief is always the first to present. Um, you know, she, she dresses as a fire. She keeps a fire turncoat in her car. So when she hears about big blazes, she goes to the scene. And in one case, at least she actually dragged a hose, right? This she is so invested, again, I think in order. I keep saying that word, but it really gets to the heart of my what I have come to, to understand about her, which is, and it explains her fealty, I mean, to a certain degree, it explains her fealty to the Senate, right? To procedure, to the rituals, the clothes, the aesthetics of authority as a, as a tamping down of potentially violent disorder of social or political agitation. Mm -hmm. So she's sort of like a a gardener in a world of rabbits that are constantly (laughs) digging up her garden. But she's (laughs) like, nope, just keep gardening. It's going to be fine. Meanwhile, the rabbits are taking her carrots away every single day. Right. Well, this is the, I mean, so the thing that, the conclusion that I come to in the piece and that I think... (sighs) 
in being really hung up on the aesthetics and signifiers of authority and respectability, like a lot of respectability politics about like dressing well and being in the right position and doing things according to the right ritual in the right way, is that part of this story that we're talking about right now about what's happened in, in American politics over decades, right, and has sped up in recent years, is that the ins- she understood insurrection and violence as coming from like street protest, right? But that insurrection has happened like on the dais of her mm-hmm. Senate. You know, mm-hmm. it's not it's Mitch McConnell who steals the Supreme Court seat. Right. It's it's Lindsey Graham um, who she hugs at the end of the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, who's like supporting a radical right wing takeover of the institutions and the twisting of them to actually smother democratic processes. And and she can't perceive because in her workup of the world, it's the ones who are at the top and have the power and are dressed in certain uniforms who are the order. She can't see that the disorder is in her own institution, in mm-hmm. part. Uh, Rebecca Traster, every single time I talk to you, I'm like, can she stick around for <laughs> the next three hours? <laughs> Although I'm sure with a cold, you're going to want to like, become horizontal as soon as possible. (laughs) Yes. With my head Um, propped up. (laughs) Yes. Thank you so much for coming by. And um, if you're listening and you haven't read her cover story of New York Magazine this week, it's great. Uh, Definitely do. Rebecca Tracer, thank you so much for coming by. Thank you both for having me. This episode is brought to you by IQ Bar. Power up your life with superior brain and body nutrition products from IQ Bar. Their plant protein bars are the perfect low-carb breakfast. Their IQ Mix zero-sugar hydration drinks replenish electrolytes. And their IQ Joe mushroom coffees will keep you focused all day long. Start each day right with IQ Bar's brain and body boosting bars, hydration mixes, and mushroom coffees. Their ultimate sampler pack includes all three. IQ Bar empowers doers with superior brain and body nutrition. All their products are entirely free from gluten, dairy, soy, GMOs, and artificial sweeteners. And today, Hysteria listeners get an exclusive offer of 20% off plus free shipping. Just text HYSTERIA to 64000. One thing I love about IQ Bar is, first of all, right now it's really dry where I am. Oh, okay. It is hard for me to stay hydrated. I, I just like, I, I'll just be going through my day and I'll be like, why am I so like... Parched. I'm parched. I'm in a bad mood. I feel like I'm going to pass out. And it's, ah, you got to drink some water. You got to stay hydrated. I really like their IQ Mix Zero Sugar Hydration Drinks because it allows me to rehydrate myself at a time when I feel like the atmosphere is trying to take all my moisture away. Well, and sometimes you need more than just water. Sometimes you need more more than just water. I also love IQ bars because I love a portable breakfast. I love a grab-and-go breakfast, no dishes. Love something I can walk around holding and eating. I like something I can eat in my car without endangering the lives of me and every other motorist on the road. A breakfast burrito... (laughs) <laughs> not not the safest thing to eat behind the wheel. IQ bar, go ahead and do it. Good for you. Great ingredients. Helps you stay focused and alert throughout the day. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you don't have to dirty any dishes. Refuel smarter with IQ bar's ultimate sampler pack. That's seven IQ bars, four IQ mix sticks, and four IQ Joe sticks. 
And now our special podcast listeners get 20% off all IQ Bar products plus get free shipping. To get your 20% off, just text Hysteria to 64000. Get your discount. Text Hysteria to 64000. That's H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A to 64000. Message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. And welcome back. Alyssa, what's the first time you ever heard the phrase bikini body? Does it stick out to you? Uh, I think I was in middle school and we were having a field day. We were having a field day and it was who was going to wear a bikini and who was going to wear a one piece. Was that policed in your middle school? Like, oh, no, 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 boys. No, it was just uh, it was just a topic of conversation. No, it was a vibe check. It was a vibe check. I was 100 percent one piece. Yeah, I was a one piece or two when I was a kid. And it wasn't because like I was ashamed of anything, but I just was like, I didn't like, didn't want, I don't know. I didn't really like, I wasn't a flaunter. In any no, way. not a flaunter. And I was also, uh, believe it or not, a competitive swimmer. So, you know, I needed the crisscross in the back to make sure I could keep doing the butterfly. Sure, sure. Naturally, naturally. So we're <laughs> going to talk about the uh, fraught history of the, I'm going to say, I'm going to characterize it as a menace, the menace of the bikini body (laughs) and the way that expectations around that have changed, the way they've sort of been harnessed as marketing tools and um, whether or not it has been kind of harnessed as a way to like pressure people into showing off more than they're comfortable showing off. So a lot to unpack as I say when I return home from vacation and look at my suitcase. Um, Okay, bringing in the other two incredible ladies that we have to join the discussion today. Um, First, you know her and love her. She's been on the show since the very beginning. An announcement, Megan Gailey announcement. If you happen to be in or near Indianapolis, Indiana on July 9th, and you give a hoot about reproductive rights, the band's off block party for Planned Parenthood Alliance Advocates East will uh, be at the Indiana State House. That's on July 9th. It's a pro-choice rally for the protection of abortion rights. And Megan Gailey will be the MC. Yeah, they said they wanted <laughs> someone funny. And I go, this is my kind of reproductive <laughs> rights rally. <laughs> <laughs> Are you going to have your baby on stage? Because that might be a pretty funny gag. I know he would be a very exciting guest um, at an abortion rally, but I will, I might be pumping on stage. I will be pumping in a fenced off area for sure though. So on stage, fenced off area, a lot of pumping happening. Oh man. Uh, Not fun. Pumping, not fun. One of the, one of the least fun things. And uh, I once cried while peeing during the postpartum. Oh dear. Yeah. Right before I got on here, um, I was checking to see if like the funnel I put on my nipple is big enough still. So those are my pre hysteria routines now. (laughs) (laughs) Nipple funnels, pee cries, all kinds of things. Um, Here's someone who is not funneling their nipples or crying about pee probably because she's the New York times bestselling author and her book anatomy, a love story has been burning up the charts and she just finished a sequel, right? Let's say finished in air quotes. Okay. She, just, she handed somebody else a sequel. Yeah. And now she's waiting for them to be like, no, you got to do more stuff. Yeah. Okay. It's it's done in the literal sense. Okay. 
but maybe not in any other sense. Dana Schwartz, J.K. Rowling of (laughs) not being incorrect. Yeah, (laughs) J.K. Rowling of nothing. Uh, (laughs) Nothing, very little in common with her. (laughs) Harry Potter and the terrible opinions. Um, (laughs) uh, But yeah, Dana, congrats on the success of Anatomy. Every single time I talk to you, it's like, bigger. it's, it's so exciting. It's fun. It feels very lucky to like write a thing like a goblin, like in my bed with eating chips and then Mm. it'd be out in the world. That feels like a a minor miracle. Dana, I have to tell you that um, my baby and I listened to the Rasputin episode of Noble Blood, too. So perfect for babies. Yes. He is (laughs) now educated on all of Rasputin and his fake large penis. Oh, he yeah. Should, your baby should know. <laughs> About the fake large penis. Uh, Almost yeah. certainly a, a cow penis. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Noble Blood is excellent. Also, if you can't get enough of Dana, Dana's got a great voice. Everybody wants to hear more Dana. So check out Noble Blood. Um, I'm blushing. This is a great introduction. Thank you. This Aaron. is like a space of positivity and also a living counter argument to the idea that when women get together, we just catfight because we don't. We no. o- we shit talk when we're not together. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> no, this is uh, we're 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 all very proud of you and and always looking forward to what you come up with next. And I'm really excited that we are all four gathered together today to talk bikini bodies because um, I hate that I'm about to say this sentence, but summer is heating up. You know, <laughs> people are getting dressed in summer clothes. The temperature is getting getting hot um, in California where I am. Um, there are uh, watering restrictions already. Um, but here's something interesting I learned about watering a lawn versus having a pool. Having a pool might actually be, be more efficient water usage than watering a lawn. Ah. Because, yeah. yeah, as long as you don't let the pool evaporate. But if you have a pool, you're going to be getting into it in bathing wear, right? Yeah. Bathing wear for women and femme identifying people has been for a long time sort of the bikini. That's kind of been the expectation. Um, Megan, I would love to start with you. Uh, What has your journey been with wearing a bikini? And is it like tangled up in any, anything besides just it being an article of clothing? Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have to say having a woman on six weeks postpartum to talk about bikinis does uh, count as workplace harassment. So <laughs> I will be filing with Crooked HR. Um, the, the I remember the very first time I got a bikini, wore a bikini, I was getting my tonsils out and my friends were throwing me a surprise tonsillectomy pool party that I knew about. Um, and I knew about it because they were like, do you want to wear a bikini? You know, like it was like a whole thing. And oh my God, I had no boobs. You know, I was in like sixth grade. It was really um, cute and funny. And I remember being like, oh, I look so gross in this. And then you look back on pictures and go, what a little cutie pie. Why didn't I like feel good? And I think my mom had me in something called a monokini as a kid, which was topless. She said it was very French. And I'm like, you're from Western New York. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Even, you know, I'm trying to get summer wear for this post-baby body. And, you know, my body just did something really fucking amazing and is continuing to keep me alive and another person alive. And I'm still like, this doesn't fit right. You know, like it's so stupid. Um, And summer is a bitch in that way. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, at least we have like the giant dresses that are still in style. And I mean, just to, just to take a, a second to to talk about you're keeping somebody else alive. It's It's so funny how much the opinions of like strangers who probably suck. It's like, why am I, why am I prioritizing whether or not I like good walking down the street to somebody who doesn't fucking matter in my life versus like being functional to the child that I'm feeding? It's a whole thing. Consumerism really fucks with us. And I just want to say, guess what? I do look fucking good to the people on the street. <laughs> that's what I've decided. <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the Daisy Duck attitude that I would expect <laughs> from Megan Gately. Um, Dana, how about you? What has your kind of journey been with um, wearing a bikini or getting dressed up to go swimming? I have a long history of self-loathing in terms of my body. I just remember being in like third grade and sitting next to uh, like a friend. We were like at, you know, recess or whatever and sitting with our knees up. And I noticed that like my thighs, the, the extra skin, you know, when you bend your knees, like touched in a way that this other third graders didn't. And that was the first moment where I was like, oh, no, there is more to my body than this other person. And that somehow is bad. Um, and again, like Megan, like in retrospect, like I look at pictures from me and I was like, I had limbs like SpongeBob. I was just like the gangliest nothing of a thing, but I was so insecure my whole life. Uh, and now I am, uh, really a a nightmare for myself when it comes to buying and shopping for bathing suits. I love a high waisted moment. Mm Mm-hmm. I have sort of a a bigger bottom and no boobs. So I, I try to make do with that. I love a one piece. I love a high waisted. I can't do like a a string bikini bikini. Yeah, a Brazilian no. cut. No, never. <laughs> and I I have my bachelorette party next weekend, and it's in Palm Springs. And so I bought this white bikini that, in theory, is my size, but I've just been trying to like psych myself up to wear. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Here's the thing: because you will psych yourself up to wear it based on, you know, the way that you felt about yourself forever. And then in the future, you'll look back on those pictures and be like, I was so beautiful, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, it reminds me of that speech that um, from Schitt's Creek that Moira Rose gave about taking nudes. Like, take nudes. Take so mm-hmm. many nudes of yourself because one day you'll look back and say, oh, I was such a pretty thing. Um, Alyssa, how about you? What has your experience been with, like, wearing swimwear beyond just like being a swimmer and and needing the crisscross in the back. Have you ever felt like pressure to have a specific type of body in order to show yourself in public? Even when I was young at the, at the country club, you know, uh, and everybody, some of the younger girls would have like their bikinis on. And I always, I remember being like, they're so skinny and they're prettier. And my mother was like, my mother who literally could have been a model. I mean, a short one, but a model nonetheless. She was like, you're perfect. You're solid as a rock. They're not (laughs) solid as a rock. And I was like, what does that mean? And to this day, I'll be like, I'll tell my husband, I'm like, hit my butt, it's solid. Um, (laughs) And so I... I have tried bikinis. I thought like I had this real moment of like weight loss around 19, no, 2014, <laughs> 13, something like that. And I was like, mm-hmm, this is it. And I went and I bought a two-piece bathing suit. And yeah, I, I mean, you know what? I feel better in a one-piece and it has nothing to do with the size of my body. You know, I was in Target the other day 
purchasing little swimmers diapers for oh, my cute. child. <laughs> um, and I was, I walked past the uh, women's section and I had, I was immediately struck by how much more inclusive the imagery mm-hmm. was than it was when I was growing up. Like, I really didn't feel like I could wear a two-piece. I I didn't even examine whether or not I wanted to wear one because my first question was, do I look good enough to wear one? And that that's like a a fucked up way for a person to think about what should ultimately be a decision about like comfort and the way they, they like to express themselves. It was like, Will other people think I look good enough to wear this? Because the Y2K era for for people who are too young to remember it, like our like our new um, uh, associate producer who was born in 1999. Hi, Fiona. <laughs> um, uh, too too young to remember that moment, or who were past their formative years and maybe lived through a different fucked up moment. Um, the Y2K era was brutal on. Mm-hmm women's bodies and girls' bodies and making us feel like we had to look a specific way. Megan, you're nodding. I remember yeah. like Chris, Christina Aguilera being like the- Oh, yeah. Oh, Want to get dirty. Those pants, you were like, ah! <laughs> um, I have vivid memories of being in a J. Crew dressing room and like my mom needing like a size zero and me not needing a size zero <laughs> and being like, ah! And they were just, the, all the models were waifs, you know? And I wanted to look like that in those bathing suits. And I, and it's weird because like I didn't want to look like that in those clothes, but in those bathing suits, I did want to look like that. And now it's like, I just, I buy, I bought maternity bathing suits from J. Crew. You can buy long torso. Like it, they have images of all sorts of um, big boobied and big bottomed. And you're like, hell yeah, great. And it, it really psychologically does work in like a kind of fucked up way because I see myself and I go, okay, great. I could be a model at J. Crew. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it seems almost like, I feel like there was a moment maybe like five or six years ago where the dam kind of broke. I think it was like everybody who was selling bathing suits, they all were sort of like, it's like they had a cabal where they all got together and like, okay, we're going to make them feel like shit again this year. Yep. Again this year, we're going to make them feel like shit. They can only be skinny. We're only going to show thin people. We're only going to show white people. We're only going to show femme people. Um, And then all of a sudden, one person was like, ha it's for comfort. This is about you. This is about <laughs> why you're happy. And all the rest were like, fuck. It was like a Red Rover, Red Rover, come on over moment where it just like, the, it broke. And now I feel like any place that sells that image feels like passe to me. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you see, if you if I walked past a display and it was a, bu- a bunch of like skinny white European looking models with straight hair wearing bathing suits, I would be like, what? The, is this like, like, who's this for? Yeah. Is this a joke? Like, what is this for? Um, but I just wonder if the idea that everybody should wear a bikini or should feel comfortable wearing a bikini, if it's like, if it makes sense to equate being happy with your body with being comfortable wearing less clothing. And Alyssa, you're kind of looking as though you have Something to add here. Oh, well, I just feel like no matter what size you are, if you feel hot in a two-piece, 
wear your two piece. But I also like for me, putting the two piece on doesn't do anything for me. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't make me feel like I've accomplished anything, I guess is my point. It's more like being this age now and putting my one piece on and being like, fuck you. I look fucking great. I don't Mm -hmm. care if my bathing suit has a skirt on it, which it does. (laughs) (laughs) But it's like, I love that the new bathing suits, there are some Instagram accounts, which I really appreciate where this woman Uh, tests different bathing suits and like how they fit. And it's like whether they roll over when you bend over, you know, like all of these things that are real. It's like, I hate that feeling or like whether the top buckles or whether there are gaps. And it's like whatever bathing suit it is, if it fits me and I feel good, then that's great. But I don't think that feeling that the the achieving some sort of like putting a bikini on is like indicative of how you feel about yourself one way or another. I also think, Erin, you're making a very important and like kind of nuanced point that the idea of reclaiming the bikini body isn't inherently, inherently empowering as an idea. I think for you, if the bikini is empowering, that's great. But this idea of like, any body you have is a bikini body. So everyone should should put on a bikini and feel mm-hmm. proud in a bikini. Yes. Like, you don't owe strangers at the beach <laughs> yourself half naked. Like, I am just not comfortable in mm-hmm. that little clothing just for me. And I, I think it is an important point to remember that, like, as we swing that pendulum back to, like, anyone can wear a bikini It doesn't mean you have to if you don't want to. I think another thing that has evolved since the Y2K era is skin protection. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, Mm. you see rash guards now. You see long sleeve SBF like bathing suits. And you're like, okay, go off. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so it's like, yeah, it's it's actually not great to have your skin in the sun. (laughs) Right. And I say that as a woman who's sitting inside with sunscreen on right now. (laughs) I mean, right. That's also a consideration for people whose religious practices involve modesty or like having their arms and legs covered at the beach. Um, I was reading somewhere that um, the there's there's a swimwear designer that designs bathing suits for women who are Muslim and want to be covered up at the beach. And a lot of people who buy them are just people who are non-Muslim and are just like, I just don't want my skin out. Or like Dana was saying, like, you don't owe anybody your half naked body if you don't want to, but also nobody who's out there in their half naked body owes you anything either. Like they don't have to look a certain way. Like there's nothing offensive about a person being comfortable in a different amount of clothing than you. And I think it's, it's hard to, to, it's hard to, to think of this as like, it's something that's very individual when we're so inclined to, decide that choices around this sort of thing is like also a decision about whether or not we're empowered or an indicator of whether or not we're like happy and in a good place emotionally. The size of my bathing suit is never an indicator of how well I'm doing emotionally. Like it's just totally decoupled from it. Like, yeah, I might be wearing uh, a bathing suit in the year 2016 that is very small, but that has nothing to do with how great I felt in 2016. I felt (laughs) terrible in 2016. You know, um, it's like a, it's, and I see a lot of ads that are kind of like, yay, yay, rah, feminism type stuff that sort of makes it seem as though the only expression of being empowered is to feel empowered within your body. And, and I think maybe it's, it's, it's more, it's less complicated for somebody like me. I'm able-bodied. Um, I'm 
on the thinner side. So I don't have like a lifetime of baggage of feeling like I can't show my body off because it's not acceptable publicly. So I'm not, I'm not going to pretend to speak to people who are larger or who call themselves fat or who are disabled or anything like that. But I also have, have made the decision for myself that like, it doesn't have anything to do with how powerful or not powerful I feel. And I don't know if that's like, I mean, that might be bad news for marketers, but that's kind of where I'm at. Well, no, you're right. Because the marketing is kind of like, celebrate yourself, put on a bikini. And it's like, I can Mm -hmm. celebrate myself in a lot of other ways. Yeah, it's almost like they they caught wind of this new wave of empowerment and capitalism means they have to figure out how to sell it back to us. Yes, exactly. Right, right. sell your own body back to you, which is very, very insidious. (laughs) I also um, think this um kind of transcends gender too mm-hmm. um oh, and I yeah. and and I it's become a comedic trope to like hear people be like oh I was the kid in the pool with a t-shirt on and it's like the the t-shirt in the pool to me from what we're like talking about that's now like a state of mind like if you want to have a t-shirt on in the pool by all means have a t-shirt on in a pool I think it can actually be pretty comfortable Hmm. but if you feel like you need to have a t-shirt on in a pool we don't want you in the prison of your t-shirt in the pool yes Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And you know what um, movie really touches on this from a gay male perspective? Fire Island. Oh, Loved so it. fun. I watched it last night. What did, you, what did you think of it, uh, Dana? Did How did you find it like illuminating into the conversation we're talking about now? I'm also, I will say, like a Pride and Prejudice obsessive. And so watching it every like 10 minutes, I would turn to my fiance Ian and be like, that's in the book. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really smart and just like I obviously am not in the gay male community or yeah but the idea that like there still is this incredibly toxic world of like no fats no femmes no uh Asians like there's a lot of toxicity uh in the in the gay community and I think centering two queer Asian characters navigating that felt really like revolutionary. It's mm-hmm. not something I had ever seen before or had been present to like a mainstream audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I also found the the body pressure on that movie, like very, <laughs> very like uh, some of some of that movie was like, oh, I'm getting a I'm getting a portal into a world that I'm not a part of. And this is so cool that I'm getting to to, you know, an initiation into this specific world of these filmmakers. But another part was like, oh, my gosh, I relate to being nervous about, you know, being half naked. I relate to that so hard, you know? And, and how how kind of genius to take the the societal difference in Pride and Prejudice of like, oh, these are explicit different social standings and relate that to like the way people look or value aesthetics. Like the incredibly conventionally attractive people with abs that is like considered a different different social status in Fire Island the way that, like, wealth and property would have been in the Regency era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree. I also want to—I just was thinking about, like, looks as status. And you know what I think helped usher in the end of the bikini body era is the kind of death of traditional MTV. 
Do you guys remember oh, like spring yeah. break? Oh yeah. And- I, yeah. I personally am friends with, he's actually my brother's dear friend, a man who was plucked off the beach while he was on spring break to be in one of the runway shows. Oh, the dream. <laughs> Can I tell? And I was like 13. The way that fucked with my brain to be like, Paul, like it was wild to just be like, oh, you can be hot enough and in Cancun that you become a model. Yeah. Yeah. And Alyssa, you're kind of smiling. That's just funny. That's just funny. That's all I have to say. (laughs) Do you remember that watching that when you were younger? Yes. Did it make you feel like the the parade of tinier? It wasn't a parade of one pieces. Nobody was wearing like nobody was giving us a shorty. Nobody was like, you know, wearing a a muumuu. Because See, it was that was very easy for, to like dissociate from because like I also never had a craving to go to like Senior Frogs. So I was like, maybe these people are just different than me. Like maybe <laughs> they just get excited about other things than I do. But weirdly, I would say I watched that and realized I was like, this is just not me. And I then built my personality. I feel like around that being like, I am not someone who goes to clubs. When I'm looking for a college or a university, I do not want to go to a place with sororities. Like I saw that and did not see myself reflected in that and was like, okay, I guess that is just a world that is not for Dana. (laughs) (laughs) So you could recut those shows with a title sequence called Do Not Want with Dana Schwartz. And then you could cut it. This is not for you. (laughs) This doesn't have to be for you. No, it doesn't have to. But it did feel very, um, I mean, growing up where I grew up and not being around a lot of, um, like a lot of people, period. Right. Um, it was it was very it, it presented to me this very intimidating idea of the world that awaited me. It's like, oh, so when I get to college, that's what's gonna happen. I have to take like all my clothes off and lick whipped cream off some guy named Chad who goes to the Probably. University of Western Michigan. Like <laughs> I have this is what college is. And it gave me this really warped idea of what kind of person I would have to be. And I think that I went into college with that well, this is what I have to do. This is part of it. And I look back on some of the, you know, first months of my freshman year as a time where I was like very lost and confused because I thought that was like the platonic ideal of what a young adult was. And so even beyond the bikini body and it was like everything that that extended out from that, I thought I needed to be. And it was like not 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 very healthy for me. I, I mean, I think the phrase the freshman 15 oh. and being so <laughs> pervasive is like, well, you're going to go to college and gain weight, you fucking idiot. And it's like, what? Why are we like do, I, I got to college and I had freshly gotten an Adderall prescription and they said, go have fun. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I, you know, I, it was the probably the thinnest I ever was and would like faint from not eating. And I was like, I am really killing it. Like I thought it was good. And it was definitely a problematic relationship with food and my body. And some of that was because I was a young adult away from a really kind and loving environment that was my parents for the first time and and was like, oh, I, I have the keys to the castle and I'm going to starve the castle. Mm hmm. It's just, it's just a shame. You only get one castle, you know? You want to keep the I castle. Know. 
No, and my castle had a big butt, you know? And it's like, just work with that, girl. (laughs) (laughs) My castle had a big butt. That is a sentence that would take a lot of explanation, even even in context, I think. Um, So let's let's wrap this conversation by talking a little bit about the— Okay, so when we were growing up, um, or pre-social media— uh, if you wanted to wear a bikini and have a lot of people see it, you just went to a very busy beach. That was like the most people. Or you you get you are so hot that you end up on the town Spring pool, break. baby. The town I pool. Would, I would also <laughs> argue there was a brief period where when you go to the pool with your friends, then that afternoon Oof. or evening you post a Facebook album that was like pool adventures. Yes. Is this just my micro generation where that <laughs> would be a thing? Where the Facebook was still the URL, thefacebook.com. Yeah, the Facebook. And you make a little <laughs> album that you have to upload manually from your digital camera. <laughs> I mean, yes, but I also think it ushered in this time when it's almost like expect like bikini pics are so all over on social media and people have made tons of money and gotten famous just posting photos of themselves in bikinis on social media. Does that ever make you feel any kind of like negative way or is it something that you can kind of tune out with the rest of the noise? I post bikini photos. Um, yeah. And I wanted to go to MTV spring break. I'm really realizing my brain is basically a can of Mountain Dew, but (laughs) I, uh, I, 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 I do feel like I feel good. I do. Like there is something where, you know, even if the comments were turned off and like the likes were turned off being like, this is my body and I'm kind of making you guys see it. Um, I I do take a, a thrill in and it's not necessarily weight dependent. Probably the most comfortable I ever felt in a bikini was when I was like nine and a half months pregnant. I remember those pictures because I was like, good, good for Megan. Yeah, totally. And sadly, I think some of it was like, the expectation is my belly is huge and I am fulfilling that expectation. But it really was just like, uh, here it is. And there was something that felt really um, good about that. And I've I've even thought since like my body is obviously very changed from pre-pregnancy. And I've been like, maybe I'll post a bikini picture of what it is right now. And, and it's, you know, still got the line down the stomach. Um, you know, still got things going on, but I'm like, I think it's, I think it's pretty cool too. Yeah. And that's the dream, right? To be able to to be able to do that and not care. Um, I'll get a wax. I do probably need a wax. (laughs) (laughs) The next step will be, you know, future hysteria episodes, like 10, 15 years from now, there'll be people that are like talking about how like not like, oh, there was a model with shaved armpits in this, in this year's campaign for this like line of bikinis and like, why, why not? Why shave your armpits at all? And I, uh, I envy that generation to be free of the menace of waxing and shaving. Oh, the things that I've been doing to get ready for my wedding. Oh. Oh, oh no. Yeah, that's coming up. <laughs> yeah, and it's a it's a fun nightmare. I feel like the expectations we put on women for this one day, even though I told myself going in, I'm like, this is stupid. I don't care. I just, I'm not strong enough to fight the tide of societal reinforcement. Oh, yeah, it'll get you. That's that's like pandemic kind of saved me from that a little bit because we only ended up having like immediate family there. But even then it was like, we have a professional photographer here. These pictures I remember of my whole life. Ah, It felt like a lot. So 
solidarity. And uh, we we can talk offline about tips to not go crazy. <laughs> I did have to cancel a wedding twice and then and then re- reschedule one. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we're feeling petty about this week. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Welcome back. We have almost reached the end of the show. Before we get to I Feel Petty, some housekeeping. More than a year after the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, the House Select Committee is finally ready to show its work. We at Crooked will be watching together, monitoring Twitter, and breaking down what's happening in the first public hearings live on YouTube in our Crooked group thread. Get real-time commentary from us, as well as the hosts of Pod Save America, Pod Save the World, Strict Scrutiny, What a Day Hot Take, and more. Tune in to watch with us live on YouTube this Monday, June 13th, starting at 7 a.m. Pacific time. Wait a minute. I did not realize it was 7 a.m. until I got to the very end of this message that I had to read, and now I've committed to being there. So nice going, whoever wrote that housekeeping copy, because now I've committed to a 7 a.m. group thread. I'll do it. I'll do it, but I won't like it. Yes, I will like it. Okay, the house has been kept. Now we're going to talk about what we're feeling petty about this week. Um, The place where I live, California, guys, uh, everybody has to drive everywhere. That's just the way that the state was built. Probably not in a great, great way. But um, one thing that I don't like about the state is that it is so oriented around driving, specifically in Los Angeles, that if you're walking around it's it's not cool. It's almost like strange if you're walking around. And specifically, here's what I feel petty about this week. Sometimes I'll be on a stroll through my neighborhood, which is actually a pretty uh, pedestrian-friendly neighborhood, all things considered. And I will uh, be about to cross the street at a stop sign, at a four-way stop sign. And a car will roll up and signal like, it's okay, you can cross. Yeah, it's fucking okay, I can cross. <laughs> I have the right-of-way. You're not being nice, you're following the law. Like, I, yes, I can cross. You, you can't go. That's, don't, I mean, yes, like, I understand, like, the, the fact that there are a lot of bad drivers and people in a hurry, but you don't need to give me this look like, go ahead, go ahead. I'm being so nice to you. You're, you're doing literally what the law requires you to do. You have to let me cross. (laughs) And if a cop saw you not let me cross, you could get a ticket. So, like, yes, signal to me so that I know that you're not going to run me over. But don't act 
proud about it, you know? I agree. It's yes. the equivalent of like when three cars get to an intersection at the same time of stop signs and one person's like, you go. And it's like, did you go to driver's ed? Of course I'm going to go on yeah. the car to the right. Jesus Thank Christ. You. It's like, that's part of the problem. It's the same thing. Yeah. And it's annoying. Or when people honk, you come to the stop sign at the same time and you are yes. the one to the right and you go and someone is like, Burr! it's like, no, this is my go turn. Back to, go back to driver's ed. It's my turn. Also, unfortunately, sometimes too cautious drivers make it less safe for everyone else. You have to follow the rules of the road. If you're supposed to go, you have to go. Signaling that I should go, it's just going to confuse me. Yeah, it's water slide rules. If you're the at the at the front of the line for the water slide, you gotta go because the line is moving a specific speed yes. and you're yes. backing it up. You're backing it up. Caroline did not know that the person on the right is supposed to go first. Isn't that right? It's the yeah. person, it is the person on the right. One hundred percent. More Carolines in the world than there are. I know. Unfortunately, Caroline. Caroline's behind the wheel. <laughs> I never passed my my permit, permit test. Oh, you hated me. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Caroline just revealed that she's a danger to herself and others every time. Yes. She, and she yes. has an SUV. She's in a big car. Uh, that's, I think, a lot of the reason that people drive SUVs because they're like, look, I'm going to get in an accident and I don't want to <laughs> be the one to die. I want to kill the other people rather than die. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Dana, what are you feeling petty about this week? Um... This is a very specific one, but if we invite you to a wedding, don't add people on the RSVP no, card. No, that is not okay. Are people doing that to you? Not specifically, but they're like to asking some people. I don't want to like put, this is just, let's keep it general. I think just as a rule, everyone needs to know, like the, you know, four this way the person on the up. right goes, uh. whoever is on the invitation is the person and limited people invited to the wedding. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, I feel like that's settled. It. I feel like that's setted law to well, borrow, uh, <laughs> to borrow. As we've learned. I mean, people are just wild about weddings. Did you guys yeah. read that? Am I the asshole on Reddit about the, the about the couple, the Disney couple who didn't have yes! catering, but they did they- spend <laughs> thousands of dollars <laughs> on, on Mickey. No, no, but Dana, Dana, it was not just, bridal Mickey and Minnie once they had them twice it's okay twice. you're right someone provide an open bar I mean that is it's not even an open bar it was no food I, there was yeah. nothing there was nothing they said, they, yeah. they said there were vending machines nearby Down the street. you can't that require people to be in a place for more than half an hour and not provide a snack also just don't invite anyone then like, if that's what you want to do, just fly and kick it with Minnie and Mickey and don't have anyone there. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. You can't ask people for wedding presents and not give them a slider or a champagne cocktail. <laughs> yeah. yeah. At a minimum. At a minimum. You know, I just was thinking it would be really funny if the Supreme Court on the day that they handed down <laughs> Dobbs also handed down a ruling that you actually can add people to the RSVP at weddings. <laughs> There would be every, everyone, everyone who has been a bride in the last 15 years would riot in the streets and that would be the end of the court. The court would just completely unravel if they handed down that ruling. Perfect. That just feels like the type of thing that they might do just for the chaos of it. Yeah. Fucking Sam Alito. Okay. uh, Megan, what are you feeling petty about this week? 
Okay, so one of my things that I like is that, and this is usually mostly with men, but like I was at an open house recently and there was a man like clearly standing in the way. Um, Like he was like standing in a doorway where like people could not move in or out because of how he was standing. And the pettiness in me loves to get to be the person that gets to go, excuse me. Um, It brings me great joy to like say, excuse me in a tone. Like we will be, we will be approaching someone like that. And my husband, CJ will be like, oh boy, here you go. Like, I'm like rubbing my hands together. I'm like, oh, I get to tell someone that they are fucking stupid and in the way. And it really, it really delights me because some people will just like stand there and I'm like, no, I'm a real, excuse me. And the tone is beat it. (laughs) the joy of excuse me by megan gailey new york times bestseller (laughs) megan gailey the joy of excuse me Um, dina can i borrow it can i i'm gonna rsvp to your wedding and add in new york times bestseller before my name yeah i think that's great you can have it it's yours you had a baby you get it i feel like you should get a sash i say this every i think or think this every time i talk to dana i'm like they should give you a sash yeah Uh, where's my sash oh a sash yeah Yeah. Uh, Alyssa, you get one too right you get it i do i do i actually um i debuted unlike dana I debuted at number 10 on the New York Times. And so I actually have a sweater that has 10 embroidered on it because wow. I was so proud. I love it. So it's not a sash. It's not a sash, but it is It is one of those cashmere sweaters that is embroidered. Uh, uh, I love that. That's great. That's great. That's classy. You know, that's like- Thank you. That's a Thank classy, you. subtle brag. Um, yeah. Alyssa, what are you feeling petty about this week? You guys, COVID has been going on for ever. Oof. Forever, we all learned so many lessons that I feel like people are unlearning on the daily. I was at the grocery store the other day, and I've noticed this so many times. The only time you need to manhandle the food in this day and age is if it's an avocado and you need to eat it tonight, okay? Other than that, don't grope the produce. Don't grope the fruit. It's like, look at it, take some, put it. Honestly, you know what I've done for anyone listening who's a produce groper? Just if you want to see, put your hand in the plastic bag that you're going to put the fruit in and just give a little touch. If you want peaches that are a little more on the ripe side, a little bit like that. Don't stand there and molest every piece of produce (laughs) and fruit. I don't want it after you have touched it. I don't want to see your little fingerprints mashed into my peach. I don't want it. I think it's disgusting. Uh, I think we've all learned from the past couple of years. Guess what? You can tell most fruit and vegetables are fine just by looking at them. Again, unless you need an avocado and you're eating it that day. That is the only time I abide molestation of fruits and vegetables. And, you know, not for nothing, there is a hepatitis A outbreak. That too. That too. Linked to strawberries. Strawberries. Yes. Yeah. Organic strawberries. It's, it's like. Mine only come from the farm. Yeah. There's, there, it's, it's like a whole thing. I think it was like purchased before the 27th of May. So. It was. If they're all kind of out of circulation by now. Yeah. Unless you froze them. But yeah. Hepatitis A can linger on. You can get hepatitis A from a goddamn strawberry. You shouldn't be for your own sake just like raw dog in the fruit with your hands, you know? It. Yes. Correct. Don't. 
Dang. And most grocery stores have a section that says ready to eat avocados, which means they're already ripe. So anyway. Well, you also don't eat the skin of an avocado. So yeah. it's like, even if you are, I mean, I guess like you're Good touching point. it and then when Ish. Else, someone Ish. else is touching it. But still. But yeah. Be, yeah. I'm, I've learned a lot. I need to put my hand in the baggie. I mean, just don't. No, I don't do that. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and I also think you can look at a nectarine and go, that one's not going to be good. Right. Yeah, if it's know. not a bright enough or vibrant enough color, it's not yeah. going to be delicious. You can tell mush. Yeah, totally. Um, oh, this is a new personal political. How to pick ripe fruit just by looking at it. <laughs> um, this was an exceptionally petty. I feel petty. Usually <laughs> somebody like comes through with something that is like, actually, this is about voting rights. And you're like, OK, well, we'll allow okay. it because it's not like, this time, not this time. Extremely petty. And I congratulate everybody here for thank being you. extremely petty. Megan Gailey, thank you so much for stopping by this week. Dana Schwartz, thank you for coming by this week. Thank you, Alyssa Master Monaco, for being my ride or die. Thank you to Rebecca Traster for coming by for the interview this week. And uh, if you guys want to get in touch, hysteria at crooked.com. If you uh, like the show, please rate us and review us. It helps people find us. And there will be more hysteria for you next week. Oh my God, guess what next week is, Alyssa? Oh, oh, I, I know, know what I next know, week I is. Erin, what have you and I done together 200 times? Done episodes of Hysteria. That's exactly fucking right. Next week is episode 200 of this podcast. Don't 200. sleep on it. Don't sleep on it. We've done 200 episodes of this podcast. I cannot think of... There are few things that exist that I have done 200 times. No, no smoke pot. That's about it for me. Yeah, yeah. I was I was going to make a crude joke, but I'm not yeah. because yeah. I'm classy. Um, but yeah, next week is our 200th episode. So you know, if any any longtime listeners want to send us a note, we we always read what you send us. Uh, but this week they're especially welcome, especially because it's a it's a milestone week, um, and we're gonna try to have something special for you next week. So definitely listen next week. It's gonna be a great episode. Look forward to talking to you then. Goodbye. I am from another planet. This nation is our Janet. But these girls got a fan it. Hysteria is a Crooked Media production. Caroline Reston is our producer. Our executive producer is me, Aaron Ryan. Alyssa Mastromonaco is our co-producer, and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis are the sound engineers, and our editor is Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Thank you to our digital team, Nar Melkonian, Mia Kelman, Milo Kim, and Matt DeGroote. <laughs> 